This is Faith Revisited. Welcome to the podcast. On Faith Revisited, we'll talk about our own church as we're constantly trying to adapt to an ever-changing world as a downtown historic church. We'll talk about United Methodist Matters as our denomination faces an exciting and uncertain future. We'll explore church leadership in the 21st century. And we'll talk to different faith leaders about their perspectives of religion today, how we can be more authentic, stop alienating people, and how faith is more important than ever to connect us to God and each other. Hey, maybe we'll touch on a topic that speaks to exactly where you are in your faith. We won't know until we try, right? Let's do it. Hey everybody, uh, this is Ben here for another uh, episode of the Faith Revisited podcast. Today, uh, I'm sitting down uh, with my buddy Chad Brooks, who it's kind of fun, Chad, that we're on Zoom together. I've been following you on Twitter uh, for for a good bit, for a hot minute now, and and we've interacted online a lot, and it's kind of neat to put yeah. a you know to put a face uh, and a, and a voice <laughs> with, yeah, yeah. with with a with a bot that I that I have interacted with for a bit. So it's a lot of fun to have you here. Thank you for being here. Uh, we'll get into sort of our topic in a minute, but Chad, if you can just give us a brief little rundown of for anyone who who may not know who you are or may want to jump on Twitter and and follow your blog and things like that. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about who you are. Yeah, so I'm Chad Brooks, and kind of what I quickly tell people is I am a bivocational United Methodist elder. I work in extension ministry and also serve the local church. Uh, but for the last 10 years now, I think I have stewarded Productive Pastor, uh, a podcast. Uh, we've got a private Facebook group, just kind of a um, uh, somebody said one time, it's like, Chad, it's just your vibe. Uh, but we talk about what does healthy ministry productivity look like. But I'm also really interested in just all things church behavior. Uh, you know, culture, social theory. So a lot of times I kind of live in that world on Twitter for the most part, but I'm everywhere at Rev Chad Brooks and then RevChadBrooks.com. So it's easy to remember. Nice, nice. So, and and just so listeners know, um, if, if they've listened for a while, you'll know that I am a bit of a nerd about learning both productivity hacks, but also, especially now in the last year, I've shared a little bit on the podcast about my journey of recovery and some struggles I had last year of uh, experiencing a little bit of burnout. And I took a month long sabbatical. Um, So I want to come back and do a separate episode just so people can know that we're going to have you back and do a separate deal with healthy rhythms and and all of that separate deal. Um, Because we could spend our whole time talking about that. But today I want to talk about you put a couple of things out recently that caught my eye, and I was like, dude, I want you on my podcast. You put out a report that you can share a little bit about that there is a disconnect in a post-COVID world about the size of churches as we've always assumed or treated yes. churches and the actual sort of numbers and size that churches are in a post-COVID world and where those things don't always match up. And then you have a great blog post sort of as a follow-up. So uh, Chad, tell us a little bit about this article and sort of the the story underneath some of these numbers. What's going on? So, so I started, or I've always thought about church growth as an interesting thing. So I quick, quick bio. I'm a Southern Baptist pastor's son. Um, My dad retired from full-time ministry in December, he was at the same church for 44 years, and it was a church of about 3,000. So I grew up in 
like legitimate six flags over Jesus Southern like Baptist world. Um, and, uh, I became a Methodist in my early twenties, but I always had an apostolic and evangelistic bent to things just kind of, you know, part of my foundation, uh, spent eight years, planted a church in North Louisiana, um, saw the full, like, I feel like that was the last gasp of Methodists trying to do big evangelical church plant launches where we spend way too much money, get a bunch of people there, like from the get go, just hit full sustainability. And so we did that and, you know, we saw, saw decent success with all that, but also went through the ringer as far as just all the ups and downs of things. And then now I, I, I said earlier, I buy vocationally pastor, uh, you know, two churches, a split one quarter time appointment and Methodist lingo, but one's 15, one's like 20. And I've been thinking about, you know, church size. You started hearing people refer to the normal size church a couple of years ago. And then um, if you remember, I don't know what, what, you, what, what you were like, but I remember when we were coming off of COVID lockdown and that initial idea of uh, people were going to come back to worship. I think we went 14 weeks. Um, you know, we were looking at our go- the, the governor's mandates in Louisiana, stuff like that. And it was, we were assuming we were going to see a hundred percent of our attendance return and it was going to have us, we're going to have to have worship like seven times in a weekend to accommodate mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. And we ended up, up having like 20% of people come back. Yeah. And so all those sorts of things had me go. And then I, 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 I talking to a lot of my pastor friends that are across a lot of different denominations, trying to understand just what engagement, what is growth, what does it mean to be like a normal sized church, like in 2021, early 2022, all those sorts of things. And just realizing there's just behavioral patterns that are very, very different. And I've always tried to be aware of some of the cookie cutter models that you see, you know, a church of 100, 125, trying to emulate, you know, the church of 500 or 1,000. Or it's like every community has the big Baptist or non-denominational church that just kind of sets the tone. And and you can see, even in one of my small churches right now, they've got 20 people. And there is a a larger apostolic congregation. It's a rural parish uh, or county. Let me use non-Louisiana language. They probably run about seven or 800 on the weekend. And, you know, they're, they just like, we have to compete. We have to compete. I'm like, you're not going to, that church is called Christchurch. And I say, you know, you're not going to out Christchurch, Christchurch. And so what we're also seeing post COVID is this desire for relationality Mm. and people really wanting that type of connections. And so, um, you know, your normal size church, that's one of the things that can do, do really, really well. But what I began realizing, especially at least in Methodist world and my circles is a lot of the smaller churches actually do relationships really bad. Mm. Like they struggle with that part of things. And so about six, eight months ago, I was having conversations with friends and we were talking about, you know, Tim Keller released like a 15 page PDF called church size dynamics mm. in 2013. So I was kind of right when I think, cause what year did you graduate seminary? I graduated in 2011. So I, me, so I was in 11 too. So we're, we've kind of both been under appointment for the same length of yep. time. So, you know, that article came out and a lot of folks in the church planting or the church, I don't want to say church growth because that sounds so icky, but that's the best word we have for it. You know, what this article did was it, uh, Keller had this premise that, you know, a Baptist church of 40 and a Methodist church of 52 have more in common than like a Presbyterian church of 70 and a Presbyterian church of 400. That 
you know, really our church size cultures um, are the biggest things that really kind of help a church understand what it does. And then he offered a handful of suggestions for like if your church wants to move from one size to the other, these are the things that are typically present. And so a lot of us were just lamenting the fact that, you know, we don't have that anymore. Right. Like this, like this information is really helpful. We use it a lot in church revitalization. I work in, I kind of worked in that department in the Louisiana conference for a while. And so it was helpful. It was a helpful guiding document, but in, you know, post COVID all of those, none of those, none of the things we had beforehand really work anymore. Um, and so I've just been working with a lot of other folks trying to develop this understanding of stuff. But like what you talk about that article that came out, um, you know, one of the things is I got contracted uh, by a couple of different annual conferences to just do some membership audits. Because, you know, we're in, I mean, most conferences are in the middle of disaffiliation stuff. They're trying to figure out where things are, uh, sm especially smaller conferences like Louisiana. Uh, the cabinet is so overwhelmed. Some of this stuff, they just, they're just not looking at right now. So I started building out these um, these kind of population maps for a handful of, of annual conferences and realizing that a significant amount of these churches are significantly smaller yep. than people assume. And I was, you know, Louisiana, my home conference is one of the conferences I was doing this at, and I worked in congregational development with them for a while. I mean, I, as a church planner, I received tons of resources from congregational development, and I'm looking at our percentage markers and realizing, oh my goodness, all the things that we know how to do in Methodist congregational development world are literally only applicable for less than 10%. Yep. So what's going on here? So we started looking at these church size things and realizing more and more and more, you're also having congregations that have never had to have a church growth conversation before uh, because they were satisfied with what they were offering. You know, they were, they were a high steeple, you know, small rural Methodist church, but now they're having to talk about church growth because they have to, they have to be sustainable. Yeah. Um, and then you also have, you know, a phenomenon of, you know, our, our mid-sized churches. And I've talked to a lot of pastors here. This is their reality. You know, prior to COVID, they were serving a church of 650. Now they're serving a church of 280. Yeah. Which, like with Keller size dynamics, that's a very, very different church. But it was the weirdest thing, and I, I don't know if this phenomenon is the same in the free church or in the Methodist church. A lot of these churches are actually still seeing the money they saw when they were that size, but their average attendance has changed so much. And so with those medium-sized churches, large-sized churches, it's not necessarily a resources issue. It's like, we just don't have the people. And then there's the expectations. I mean, you know, a church of 250, you know, behaves very differently than a church of 600. Yeah. Uh, and so all of these things were going together and the recurring thought, because I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot of research and like that, the blog post you're talking about, um, is really kind of the, the first thing as part of the research. And uh, what I wanted to start figuring out was how do people call churches? Like, how do you describe church size? Uh, because I was, you know, in talking to Methodists and in talking to free church people, I was hearing two very different ideas of what, a, what, is, a, what is a small church. Right. Uh, you, know, you know, in Methodist world, a lot of people would call a small church a church of like 30. And then I've got, friends that are or people I work with that are Baptist pastors, that they serve a church of 215 and they call it a small church. Mm. And so the thing I began to ask in my head is, because, you know, the Methodist church, we, we struggle with growth conversations. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, one of them is if you kind of look at, at, at denominational tradition, 
you know, if you're Catholic, you want everybody to know that you're not Protestant. Right. You know, if you're Episcopal, you want people to know you're not Presbyterian or Methodist. If you're Methodist or Presbyterian, you want people to know you're not Baptist. Right. If you're Baptist, you want people to know that you're not Pentecostal. And if you're Pentecostal, you want people to know you're Pentecostal. And and we're we're adding to that now because in the Methodist world, if you're GMC, you don't want people yes. – you want people to know you're not UMC. And yes. if you're UMC, you want people to know you're not GMC. And, we're defining and, ourselves by what we're not. Exactly, which is all that which all that is is fundamentalism. <clears throat> oh yeah. Yeah, that's all it is. And I think what you brought up something interesting is because typically I mean, I've had personal interactions with folks that when I, I bring up discipleship or congregational growth or strategic ministry, that sort of thing, they will say, Chad, that's a conservative thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's I mean, so even now, like I'm 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 I am a little scared, and I'm glad you said that because I've not told anybody this yet, but like I'm a little worried. That even now, United Methodists are going to fight against any sort of growth understanding because they see that as predominantly a conservative pattern. Well, and so it's interesting there, j- just to make a point of connection. So I'm currently, a- as of first of the year, chairing our conference's Congregational Development Board. So I'm, I'm chairing that, um, and, and I think in a similar way, I think you and I come from similar worlds and by that i mean i think we have held certain tensions probably Mm -hmm. for most of our ministry we graduated seminary in the same year 2011 and i'd be willing to bet that i mean you mentioned tim keller but for a lot of us folks like you and me we bring this flavor of that was when the whole emerging church movement was going and it was the it was the evangelical answer to being inclusive. It's how can we yep. be inclusive and with a movement and we can grow. And of course, we know that a lot of stars of that movement from when we were in seminary, those stars have fizzled out. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it's kind of dissolved or, you know, dissipated into different strands and whatnot. Um, I mean, I'm pretty openly, you know, in favor of full inclusion. But at the same time, I have tension with my UMC institutional friends for what you said, which is like, we can be evangelical in this, literally yeah. evangelical. Yep. This is not a conservative thing. This is a gospel thing. This yeah. is this is growing the church and growing the kingdom kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it's a weird tension because it's it's almost like it's like people in the well, she's Methodist world language. It's like GMC friends are like, I don't know about you and all that inclusive stuff. But then UMC folks are like, I don't know about you and all that church growth stuff. And the funny thing is, I actually find or even effectiveness, right? Even right. effectiveness or, is or a conservative thing, like just yeah. accountability of are you doing your job and not just accepting, you know, uh, 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 mediocrity, yep. you know, and yep. saying, well, I'm doing my best. I find that I actually have more in common many days with more conservative friends because we at least speak openly about what we disagree about but we share enough otherwise. Yeah. So it's, it's a strange world that I think both of us live in. Um, I, I want to add something to and get your thoughts on this. I feel like there's, it's like peeling an onion. There's yeah. layers of things happening with this disconnect on church size, because not only are churches a third of the size that they were in a pre COVID world, but they're also having to hold into tension intention there 
their attendance is a third of the size, but their systems are still built for yes, yes. something three times or, larger. Exactly. And then yeah. They're, they're, they're either trying to preserve something that's bigger than they really are. Yep. Um, or like you said, there may be some churches who are going, well, hey, our resources are good, so why change? But what they're missing is you're about four deaths away from being at the edge of the cliff. Yeah. The right four people die in the next two years or move away or something dramatic yeah. changes in their life. You may be okay now, but if you're not working ahead, then you're going to be at the edge of a cliff. Yeah. And all these systems and stuff are going to catch up the fact that you're not the size, size church. I, I, what do you, I mean, where, how are the multiple disconnects playing together? So, so I think that, you know, some of the disconnect is just, and I, I'm kind of glad that I'm talking to another Methodist about this. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, let's keep it Methodist. <laughs> um, you know, I've got a friend of mine who's, I mean, I'm a, I'm 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 comfortable being a centrist, um, which still sounds kind of weird. But I've got a friend who's a mentor to me; he's a lot more conservative than I am, and he always said he's disaffiliated now. But he's always said the Methodist Church thinks losing is winning. Ah, oh. it's just so ingrained in the culture. This kind of like you talked about this idea that you know reaching others, you know, using that sort of language, is just so. I'm not that person that I mean, I remember when we were planting the church um, uh, and we were seeing a tremendous growth our first year, like I had another pastor working with me um, and she was more recently out of seminary and was more theologically uh, progressive than I was. And she was having friends call her and they're like, what are you, something's wrong. Like you should not be growing like this. Yeah. And so I, so I've experienced just that we what on earth are you talking about push here? But what I'm frightened is, and I especially now, and this is another scenario I'm going to throw at you because I don't know about your conference, but I've seen it in other places. You know, you know me and you. I'm 42. We're we're in the same I think spitting distance of age. Yeah, I'm 40. Um, so I think that you know we think about the generation, the next generation of pastors United you know, Methodist Church. They're probably about to retire. Yep. Okay. Um, you know, they were the ones leading the large churches of the pre-COVID era. And, you know, they were cabinet members, that sort of, and they're fantastic pastors, fantastic pastors, but um, a lot of them were not the ones to grow those churches to six, seven, eight hundred. A previous generation was were the ones that, that led that type of, you know, old school mainline growth in the 80s and 90s. Right. So now you have those pastors who are serving those churches pre-COVID or right there at COVID, because there's a lot of appointment changes around the 2020-2021 area. And you've seen these churches now shrink down, you know, I mean, we've, I've seen churches run 750 in 2019 and be running 180 now. Yeah. And you've got a generation of pastors that have never had to learn what does it mean to lead through growth? And they're having to deal with a not just you know breaking that figurative two hundred barrier, which Keller talks, which all we'll talk about is difficult. But they've also we're going to have to do this at the having never learned how to do this, or never having experience doing this in their career, and they're also having to to you know because growing in twenty twenty three is drastically different than growing in twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen. And so, so much of this research really coming is coming down to the fact of like we have to have, and I put in that article, um, we have to have goalposts. Like the, the best thing we can do right now for churches is help them establish goalposts yeah. uh, because, you know, so many people, we don't know what kind of field we're playing on. 
And if we can't get around determining, okay, this is a church size in a way that's not just because you know, I, I, in that article, I, I, I linked to, you know, Tom Rainier, uh, um, offered up a different level of sorting for churches now based off of the median attendance. Um, and it describes them I and mean, it sorts them, but it doesn't help because some of the sociological phenomena that you see of a, of a church of 85 or 90 compared to a church of 270, they don't fit into his sorting methodology. And what was so interesting with most Methodist and mainline and Roman Catholic people, their size description fit more of his idea or their experience and not fitting into the more cultural realities of how churches behave which is what you know a lot of Baptists and non-denominational people that took the survey, they're following into they're falling into Keller's size categorizations. Now they might be because their pastors pay attention to that. Right. Uh, and so there's no way to really account for that. But at least, but for right now, before we do anything, I think so much of it for me is helping these pastors of normal sized churches and what their average worship attendance is now realize, hey, don't go blow all of your money on these programs or this technology or this kind of stuff. You've got 70 people in your churches. Let's talk about how you can measure and understand relational health at that level. Well, and I want to I, I, I want to jump in right there because you just touched on what I think is another big disconnect. And and that is we're see COVID is this accelerant that uh, things were sort of fizzling in this direction. COVID was like gasoline on the embers that now churches that were struggling are near closing, you know, budgets that were getting tight are now in crisis. I mean, there are all these things. One of the things that I think is, is largely unspoken as of now, or at least I'm not hearing it, but I think it's a reality on the ground. I don't think we know how to name it. And I don't think we know how to do what to do with it. And that is, I believe we are seeing in large part the demise and hastening of the death of the programmatic church. Yes. The 1990s, early 2000s, we're going to offer every age level of everything there is. We're going to have eight people in the children's department. We're going to have six assistants in the youth department. We're going to have, do we want small groups? Hire a staff person for that. And churches are going, we can't afford this bloated staff anymore. Not only that, we don't realize what a burden we've put on lay people by saying, basically what we say in the programmatic church is not... We, we think it's discipleship. We don't say it's discipleship. It's not. <laughs> it's we want to occupy all of your time because if you spend yeah. most of your time at church, then you're being a Christian. Yep. Versus how do we empower you to go out and live as normal people in the world as God created it yeah. and, and put these things into practice? So I think in many ways we're seeing the, the death of the programmatic church. But the question is, and you touched on it, what comes in its place? Mm-hmm. How do we create a missional church out of the bones? You know, Ezekiel 37. Yeah. How do yeah. we do Ezekiel 37 move with a church to say these bones can rise again, but they're not going to be the programmatic bones you you thought they were? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think what's so highly ironic is, you know, so many times the churches that you're your, I'm going to use pre-COVID, but your older mid-sized Methodist church of like, you know, 200, 250 um, was chasing the, you know, the big Baptist church down the street or more so now the non-denominational church down the street of 2000. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
they were significantly less programmed out than you <clears throat> were. Yeah. I mean, it's I remember a simple formula. People don't realize it, but it's a pretty simple formula. It's yeah. And I, I remember when, so my last, my, my last full-time appointment was in Monroe, West Monroe, uh, North Louisiana. Uh, you know, the parish was 115,000 people. Uh, it's where duck dynasty was filmed. So to kind of yeah, give you the yeah, context yeah. like that, that level of redneckery was normal. Um, <laughs> but, but West Monroe, the, the duck dynasty town, you know, the city limits was like 15,000, 16,000. But there were five churches in that city that worshiped over 1,500 <clears throat> each Sunday. That's amazing. It's, it's massive. I mean, massive missional saturation. Um, but what was the, the biggest one I remember did not even start a small group ministry until five years ago. Their church, their church staff were stacked on top of each other because they didn't have enough facility space because they did not have, they didn't have Sunday school classrooms. Like they had kids world worship center. Yeah. That was it. Like this was a Sunday morning church of like 2,500 people. And they were the one that everybody in town was chasing. And it was like, y'all, they don't, it's that for, for, for a Methodist church to feel, you know, that level. And you know, when we were a neighbor, when the neighborhood church movement in the eighties and nineties, yeah, that made sense. But that's when people expected the church to be the center of their entire life. Yeah. And so we're still formatted in that. And so kind of going back to this whole size thing, it's like, uh, how do we help churches realize that, you know, the, the normal size church, you know, in Louisiana, um, 75% of our churches in Louisiana conference are under 40 people in worship. Yeah. Inferiority complex is so real though. Yeah. Yeah. Methodist, you know, we, I, I think it got implanted in us because we were so big in the mid 1800s. Then we spent the 20th century as the smartest denomination. Yes. Yes. Meanwhile, yeah. Meanwhile, we were getting past in church size and this inferiority complex set in that, that, well, at least we have educated clergy. At least we have the best programs in town. At least we, and the truth is like, we have to at least confess and get past the fact that we have been guilty of empire building versus kingdom building. Yeah, well, no, I can't. And I can't remember which one it was. I was trying to track it down once, but like somebody told me one time that there was the opening paragraph. It was like the 1912 or 1916 discipline, and I can't remember if it was the Emmy North or South. And I was I was on the hunt for it for a while, but there was an apology paragraph in the beginning of this discipline from the bishops apologizing for the discipline having to grow. Huh. But their but their but their 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 comma but was our movement is expanding so rapidly. We, we need to organize it even more. Yeah. Uh, and I, which that was amazing to see when, when we truly were like this movement movement, but it also, have you ever read Rodney Stark's the churching of America? No. Uh-uh. Um, so one of the things he talks about that is that he sees patterns of religious movements enter steep decline when two things happen when their administrative systems become overly complex and when their clergy become entitled Mm. and his entitlement was parsonages. I mean, it was, it was guaranteed appointments. It was, it was pension programs and guaranteed appointments. 
and he traces beginning because his whole and a lot of what I love about him was because I would use him to counteract like the God guns and family people in 2020 and 2021. And they're all like, we're everything's going to hell. I'm like, well, actually, when America was at its least religious was in the colonial period. Mm-hmm. And Stark talks about that. And he's like, we were actually at our most religious in, in the 1950s and 1960s. And we've not declined near to the point where we were at the founding of our country. But what Stark talks about is, you know, how you go from George Whitfield to Unitarian Universalism and Thomas Jefferson being a deist in two generations. And it was the same theological trajectory that happened. And he, he clocks it to, you know, the systems became overly complex and the clergy were entitled. And, and, and then that's where you begin to see the rise of the Baptists and the Methodists. And one of the things he talked about was it was an extremely simple system and the clergy had to work for it. <clears throat> yeah. And you know, it's fascinating. So I always tell people I learned in seminary that United Methodism is a uniquely American institution. Yeah. We model we, we came of age with the country. We've modeled ourselves. We followed similar trajectories in governance and, and the whole nine yards. But I had a seminary professor who loved to say that the other part of that is the United Methodist Church is always the cutting edge of 30 years ago. Yeah. And what we missed, and I think, I think that this denominational split, COVID, like we're coming to head with dealing with this possibly sooner rather than later, but we've been fighting against it forever. What we missed is that we sort of peaked in the 1970s alongside a federal government that had boomed to the point that there was yeah. too big government. There's the government had gotten too large. And what United Methodism did was it just said this, hey, we need this big bloated, you know, hierarchy kind of thing, agencies and all the stuff. And 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 meanwhile they it, the trickle down burden falls on the local church to keep all that stuff funded. Well, what we've forgotten is that in America for the last 40 years, the government has been shrinking. Yeah. Democrats, the so-called lovers of big government, have actually shrunk the government faster than Republicans. Yeah. I yeah. have an entire federal building that got emptied out with employees during Barack Obama's tenure because the government got leaner and, and more efficient. And, it, and Republican and Democrat alike have been working toward that on the federal government of shrinking the size of the government. We are still the cutting edge of 30 years ago with our institutions. We haven't gotten word that big bloated – uh, bureaucracy yeah. is harmful. Yes, it does. Yeah. It, it, I think that you will see, depending on conference health, you will see certain conferences have to get scrappy. Yeah. And what's so interesting is because of disaffiliation, you know, Louisiana, we have not had enough clergy for a long time. <clears throat> well, with disaffiliation now, you know, we might actually have a surplus of clergy. Yeah. Like, what is that going to look like? Or what is that going to do? And so I, I like what you, you said, like, you know, it, it, in some ways, maybe, you know, COVID and the disaffiliation conundrum is actually, it's like we were stuck 30 years ago, but it's now like rapidly thrusting us yes. back into where we are. And we're going to have an adaptive challenge for a few years. And then what's going to emerge is probably a more contextual version of American Methodism. Yes. So I, this is so good, Chad. I, I, we could just spend an hour on this. I, I, I want to wrap up, but I want to I want to ask you this question, and we can both 
sort of share, um, because I think we see these things very similarly. In light of all of this that we discussed, where are you seeing signs of hope? So where I'm, so this is where I am right now in my research. I'm at the point to where I can kind of definitively say, uh, you know, a Methodist or a Presbyterian or a Roman Catholic has a different understanding of size categories than a person in the free church does. Um, that's there. What I'm curious about right now is I'm trying to do as much work as I can inside of uh, the evolutionary psychologist Robin Dunbar, the idea of Dunbar's number. Have mm-hmm. you heard of that before? I've heard of it, but but tell us briefly what what that is. So Dunbar's number, kind of in short, is that humans, or primates actually, have a natural gathering at certain numbers. And yes, he talks right. about the 150 a bunch. And and this research came out before social media. So, you know, the average person has 150 friends. Mm-hmm. And that honestly has been like, that, that, that's that been smoked. Like that side of his research, he's just kind of been like, okay, now that's, there's some phenomenas that are there, but that's what I'm really interested in. Cause I do feel like this runs current with, with, with a lot of discipleship stuff I've seen is why does, as Dunbar says, that people also tend to gather in numbers of 5, 15 and 50. Mm. And so in Methodism, you know, the five and 15, you, you see bands and classes. Yep. Right there. And then in 50, if you look back at Mike Breen's work in missional communities, and that's one of those terms that's been thrown around so much, people have forgotten what it actually yeah. means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But to, to Breen, a missional community was a gathering of two or three small groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I'm curious about now is I'm, I'm trying to, to identify and find churches that seem to have um, – an abnormal level of health post COVID. And one of the things I look at that is, you know, what's their average attendance, but also what's their mission field. You know, you, you put those numbers into each other and you see what percentage of the mission field is the church. And I call that number the missional saturation. And like, sometimes I'm finding country churches, uh, you know, Steve James, have you ever, have you ever met Steve James before? Mm-mm. So he's the former director of development for the Western North Carolina conference. Okay. He's my boss now with passion and partnership. One of the primary companies I coach through. But Steve would talk about, you know, prior to COVID, especially the mid-90s, they were seeing, you know, like a healthy church was 9 or 10% of its mission field, attendance-wise. Well, I mean, now, if you could find a church that's 1% of its mission field, they're doing pretty good. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to find these normal-sized churches that are, you know, under 100, that are, you know, a couple of percent of their mission field post-COVID. And I'm trying to go back now. And, and some of it might be program ministry, but it's like, okay, how many distinct groups of like 515 do you see inside of there? Because what I really think that the average size church can look at that wants to find health, uh, if they're small enough to still be inside of that relational grouping, which is really under 125, can we measure health through the number of people they have active in groups? Because that's going to cause no relational connection. Uh, and so that's what I'm interested in right now is, you know, how can we give people these tactical handholds to move forward on this? Um, because that for the church that makes a decision we need to grow, it needs to be completely contextual to their community. You know, not some cookie cutter. You buy a growth plan from Andy Stanley, which is in the conference spends hundreds of thousands of dollars sending everybody to X conference like we used to do. But what does it look like for, for congregations to realize it's actually kind of easy 
to begin to realize, okay, these are our goalposts. This is what we need to pay attention to. This is how we be the best church for our community. I love that. Um, that's interesting. So in South Georgia, we are currently forming and launching uh, a variety of plants. And, and what we're doing there is, and, and of course, you know, about half of our annual conference will have disaffiliated by, by June. Yeah. And we have, like you, we're, we're built similar to your annual conference. South Georgia is mostly a county seat slash rural with a couple of metropolitan centers. Yeah. But we're going, uh, we're seeing traction in towns where multiple United Methodist churches have left. But what they're having is they're having votes where you have to hit a 66% threshold to disaffiliate. I'm not worried so much. Our board's not worried so much about the churches that vote 90, 95% to leave. What we're aiming at is tell us more about that church that hit 80. Because if there's yeah. 20% of the church that didn't want to disaffiliate, would they be open to starting a new thing? And we're going in and we've got a variety of communities. We've got uh, models emerging of home churches that yeah. latch on to host churches. So my church in Savannah, Georgia has a home church now in Albany, Georgia, has about 20 people in it. And the neat thing there, and this was part of my my doctor of ministry work was creating hybrid church. And one of the lingering yeah. questions I had that I, think I couldn't answer a year ago, but it's starting to come true is could an in-person small group worship online and have in-person fellowship and discipleship and relational ministry at yeah. the same time? So we've got a home group that has about 20 people a week. They meet at a house. They worship online with us. I've sent them a box of hymnals. I mean, they, they print out yeah. very... They're traditional worship people, but then they have like a thing that that's a relational ministry there. So that's an example. We have another church in in our conference that's doing a we call it a ho, a church within a church model. So can this group go to a church but say, hey, can we use your fellowship hall for like a relational time, like you're saying this forty fifty, and then we'll come to worship with you. Yeah. So there's and we're, and we're dabbling in fresh expressions. We're dabbling in yeah. a couple other models, but I mean, to me, those are organic, back to yes. the roots as Methodist. It's, and it's movement. It's planting. it's it's movement based side of that. So uh, Fernie yeah. Rivera, I talk, I love Fernie, and I, I talk about Fernie a lot. Um, he was doing an old school parachute drop ish mother daughter church at a First Methodist Baton Rouge. They were due to launch the Sunday the governor shut the state down for COVID. They quickly pivoted to online only, and a year later, they made the decision, we're just going – and he's reaching a massive amount of like mid to late 20-something uh, students. I mean, this is Baton Rouge, LSU's right there. These are folks with master's degrees or folks that are sticking around and wanting to stay in Baton Rouge. They meet for worship physically once a month. Mm -hmm. They have a heavy in-person small group perspective, and then they live online for so many things. And they, I, mean, I think Fernie has around a hundred people. I mean, so, I mean, so Fernie's kind of has a, a year and a half now of example of like yeah. what you talked about with y'all's home church. Um, you know, we've got the muscles to do this. And I think yeah. because of our ecclesiology, <clears throat> we actually can respond to this sort of thing better than folks with the free church ecclesiology. Yes. Well, so let's 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 do what we know we can do really well and take advantage of it, rather than lamenting who we're not and what we can't do. 
So here, and here's the crazy thing with numbers, because talking about having the church remake itself after COVID. Before COVID, my church, seven years ago, we averaged about 50, 60 in worship. Right before COVID, early 2020, we were about 130, 135, 140, okay? Go through all the COVID thing, the big decline, slowly coming back. Then, of course, every variant that comes out, it's like Groundhog's yep. Day. They see their shadow. They're home for six more weeks. Yep. Now, first of this year, three years later, we're back to 130, 140 in person, but we have 50 or 60 who are online and now 20 in a home group. So it's this weird exactly. branching yes. out yes. of the church yes. that I'm having to constantly remind my people, I know you're excited about in person, me too, but understand how much bigger we actually are. Yeah. Bigger Doing than that. you can see. Yeah. So like one of the things like with the missional saturation from a, from a congregational development perspective that I'm trying to, to work on with some folks is this, like, so you identify an area and say, okay, hey, so such and such church declined by 125 people post-COVID. We have some money and some, and some resources we want to invest because we need to get that, you know, that missional saturation back up. Um, so, you know, to, to 1.5% or whatever. Okay. So what's easier, what's cheaper, and what has more enthusiasm? Pouring a bunch of research resources into a church that still three years after COVID hasn't managed to gain those 125 people back or mm -hmm. saying, okay, can we start three or four new expressions of church in this community and area that combined could reach around 125 people? That's going to be cheaper. That's going to be easier. I mean, that's that that, that sort of a thing. Yeah. is a completely different realm of looking at this because especially by now post covid if someone does not go to church they probably have a really really good reason for it yeah and to get them to step foot in your 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 mausoleum of 1995 is going to be a stretch yeah yeah but there's so many things that we can do to reach those people it's just are we willing to rethink what does that worship hour on Sunday morning look like? Does it have to be there? Does it have to be there? And all just, just begin asking new questions. And I think that there you can begin to see, we can begin to have the excitement that I imagine that Coke and Asbury might've had mm. when they, when they entered into new England and realized like, I mean, I, I, I preached, um, you know, the classic passage last Sunday, you know, the harvest is here, but we need workers for the harvest. Like, I mean, folks, folks need what we have. Are we willing to see that as the primary energy versus just trying to maintain, maintain what was already dying in COVID just kind of mm. kicked the last gasp of air out of it? So our best days are ahead of us. Yeah. 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 It's good. Chad, that's a great, great spot to probably end on. I want to have you back. This is so good, man. Um, for listeners, we're going to put some links in the show notes to various places you can find Chad. Um, please follow along with his blog. Follow him on Twitter. He is always putting out uh, such great content that that is thought-provoking. 
um, and, and can lead you down these delightful rabbit trails uh, of your own learning and insight. Uh, Chad, thank you also for just being a, a lifelong student, you know, to, to, to be curious about everything and, and bring us into your, your, your curiosities. Um, I think the church is a better place for, for you wanting to learn more. So we appreciate that and appreciate your time with us here today on the podcast. Well, thanks so much, Ben. It was great to be here with y'all. All right, everybody, that wraps it up for another episode of the Faith Revisited podcast. If you have not already done so, go to your uh, favorite uh, place to listen to podcasts. Give us a uh, five-star review and uh, um, a friendly review, if you don't mind, uh, and, and uh, tell your friends. Share episodes as uh, you feel led. You can also find us on Facebook, Faith Revisited Podcast, as well as a couple of other social media outlets, Instagram uh, and Twitter as well. Love to follow along in our journey. Until next time, this has been the Faith Revisited Podcast. <laughs>